Hello, and welcome to Short Wonder, a podcast showcasing short fiction and poetry by contemporary writers from around the world. Sophia Sumiter is an author and lecturer based in Virginia, USA. Sophia has published two novels, A Stranger in Alondria and The Winged Histories, and the short story collections Tender and Monster Portraits. She's been nominated for and won numerous awards for her work, including the World Fantasy Award for A Stranger in Alondria. When she's not writing, Sophia is teaching African literature, Arabic literature and speculative fiction at James Madison University. Sophia is reading her short story, Broken Thorn, today. Experience Broken Thorn Branded Content for the Department of Culture and Tourism, Broken Thorn The juxtaposition of the natural world and the effects of witchcraft sets the scene for memorable encounters in the mountain capital. Traditional sleighs, known locally as flims, on the fresh snow of perpendicular boulevard form a striking contrast against the latticework of the high keep. Day gives way to night above the endless expanse of the blasted quarter. A Thornian lady in a native surplice strolls through the cave of light. Remote, ensorcelled, and always surprising, Broken Thorn is a city of contrasts, where diverse elements are united by a common dependence on magic. There's a special kind of silence among the impenetrable snows of the blasted quarter, the 250,000-square-mile wasteland that surrounds the city of Broken Thorn. Known locally as the Emperor's Shroud, this mesmerizing wilderness of frost rises and falls as far as the eye can see. Here, where the experiments of the original wizard explorers wrecked the landscape, scarring it with craters and tossing up towers of ice, there is little to disturb the peace save the occasional shadow of one of the local praying owls across the snow. Yet just over 120 miles away, the enchanted metropolis of Broken Thorn, capital of the Confederation of Sorcerer Fiefdoms, rises on its obsidian crags, home to some of the most extraordinary architecture on the planet. Domes and cupolas swell toward the stars, while a series of catacombs hosts a bustling market district underground. In these tunnels, where flickering torches lit by magic baffle the gaze, an intoxicating sap is purveyed in glass thimbles. The natural world and the charmed environment exist side by side in beautiful symbiosis as roaring blizzards and devastating avalanches spurred by wayward spells encircle the ever-deepening city. Carved into courts and porticos by the inventiveness of enchanters, this patchwork of urban endeavor provides a sparkling setting 
for intrigue, seduction, and crime. During this reporter's stay at the Evermore Hotel, one of the guests was killed by a poisoned letter that evaporated her bone marrow. Formidable forts, palaces, and resplendent temples dedicated to the greater and lesser demons chronicle the history of this wind-lashed domain. This reporter was granted a rare interview with the Grosse Chatelaine, an interview which, unfortunately, we were later forbidden to print. We can only report, therefore, that the carpet of the high keep is darker than rubies, that the great lady is as lovely as she is powerful, and that, in a gesture of Thornian hospitality, she permitted us to sip the cream of an owl souffle from her curved fingernail. Outside her picture window, formed of a single massive quartz, convicted felons were freezing to death on the battlements. The Grosse Chatelaine honored us with a tour of her private museum, which houses the world's largest collection of human kidneys. In this city, a history of witchcraft stretching back to Edwin the Eviscerator coexists with stylish contemporary settings. Elegant Thornians in the traditional surplice of human hair stroll through markets brimming with products from the farthest reaches of the world. The music of the flen, a hollow instrument initially invented for the purpose of causing madness in one's enemies, echoes harmlessly from the terrace of the Evermore, where couples dance in the mist flung up by the opulent chasm. Visitors to the city often note that these paradoxical elements, tradition and modernity, nature and artifice, give Broken Thorn added depth and character, somehow complementing rather than contradicting each other. This reporter, however, cannot say that the journey from the keep back to the Evermore was particularly comfortable or that our sentiments ran to appreciation for the streets that twinkled outside the window of our hired flim. Having sunk embarrassingly into sleep at the Chatelaine's table, was it the fermented resin? The owl souffle? The fingernail? A sleep which the Chatelaine, with the grace of the noblest of ladies, accustomed to the weakness of her subjects, immediately forgave, we continued to suffer from lethargy, a depression of the spirits which, truth be told, continues to this day. This feeling of enervation was accompanied by increasing lower back pain. Snow whirled dazzlingly along the lighted streets. Arriving at the hotel, we were mortified and dismayed to find that something had seeped from our person, staining the seat. The colorful collage of broken thorn never fails to captivate visitors, forming a backdrop for surprising encounters and unexpected experiences. What could be more astonishing than to find, upon turning one's back to the mirror, 
a leaky bandage across one's lumbar region. As of this writing, the scar is scarcely perceptible. A faded souvenir of the icy capital of witchcraft, where, among the near-vertical streets, in the brimstone odor of necromancy, active adventures and near escapes await. Sophia, thank you so much, so, so much for reading your story. It's just lovely to um, listen to you reading your own words. Thank um, you. And it's actually, and it's terrific to have you on the Short Wonder podcast. It's great. We've been chatting for a few months, actually. So, you know, finally the day has arrived. Yeah, it's great to be here. Um, so here's the first thing I noticed. There's, there's a really lovely meditative quality to the way that you read. So I'm wondering... Do you read aloud often, maybe as part of your writing process, or are you just lucky enough to have a great reading voice? Well, thank you. I I think that reading your own work aloud is a great idea, and I love to read aloud. I've really enjoyed it, especially when my kids were young. I have two kids, and um, you know, reading to them was so much fun. I do enjoy it, but I don't read my own work aloud, mostly just because it takes too long. It just takes too much time and I barely have enough time, you know, that I to spend on doing the actual writing. And so, um, yeah, reading it aloud doesn't happen when I'm alone. It's not part of my practice, but I do love it when I get the opportunity to read and often notice things, you know, because I'm, I am very interested in rhythm and, and the sound of the language. And yeah, so it is, it is great to have the opportunity to read things aloud because you do sort of catch things and get a different, a different sense of the work. Mm -hmm. And and one of the things I, I, I love about your writing and even more so listening to that story is that for me, I I feel like it's, you, you kind of create this, magic carpet that lifts the reader up on a, on a journey through this really rich mix of of language and symbolism and place um so i'm are they components that you're aware of or is that where your inspiration comes from yeah i love that i love that actually um that idea of of language and symbolism and place um yeah i am I would say in my work, I am extremely interested in atmosphere uh, and in conveying an atmosphere and an experience that feels immersive for the reader. And this is a very, it's a, it's a weird, it's a curious thing because I don't, I don't actually know how it happens. I know, I recognize it when it happens, when I'm reading something and I have that sense of, this is something, this is something different. This is a different experience that I'm having um, within this text and it's rich and it's vivid. But to actually figure out how to create that kind of experience is, it's very difficult. I haven't, I haven't managed to sort of pinpoint really anything (laughs) that I can say, do this and you Mm. will have conveyed an atmosphere. Um, I guess the only thing I could say is I, I'm always interested in weather. I'm always interested in light, um, whether it's outdoor light or interior light, um, time of day and, and the type of lighting. Um, but yeah, 
how those things come through the language and the images is really fascinating to me. And it's just, it's an ongoing experience because I don't have, and it's probably a good thing that I don't, I don't have a formula for it at all, but it is yeah. sort of, um, it's always, it's always a goal. It's always something I want to do with every piece. Yeah. Um, you mentioned formula then. Um, so without want, I mean, I, all writers, I think, hate being dropped in category boxes. Um, but, but I mean, you feel free to contradict me. But so, so I look at you as very much writing in a kind of fantasy, speculative fiction mm -hmm. space, which is pretty broad anyway. Um, but what is it? What is it that attracts you to writing there? Is it? I mean, you were mentioning then about you know, sort of weather and place and atmospheres. Is, is, does it give you more freedom to play with that? Perhaps. Um, the question of why fantasy is one that, of course, I've been asked um, many times over the past decade or so. And I love this question partly because I do not have a good answer for it. Mm -hmm. And it used to really irritate me that I didn't have a good answer. Um, but now I sort of enjoy not having a, a good answer. So I have two inadequate answers that I tend to give to the question of why fantasy. One of them is um, to sort of turn the question around and say, why not? And to say, you know, within, if you look at world literature and you go very far back in time, you go to sort of the roots of storytelling, you will find fantasy everywhere um, and in every time. Realist fiction is the newcomer. You know, it's it's actually very, very new. And so, you know, one of the things I, I do when I get that question is sort of t turn it around and say, well, what you should be doing is asking everybody who doesn't write fantasy why they're not writing fantasy, because this is the, the, the bigger and wider and deeper tradition of narrative on this planet. Um, but again, it, it I say it's inadequate because it it's... I don't think it's a bad answer, but it does sort of sidestep the fact that in the times and the world we're living in now and the context that I'm living in, um, people don't expect uh, writers to write fantasy necessarily. It still feels like it needs to be explained. So it's sort of like, yeah, okay, it's been in all places and times, but what about now? You know, so that's yeah. inadequate. And then my second inadequate answer is um, that I think that for people like myself, so I'm of mixed heritage. My father was from Somalia. Um, my mother is uh, an American of Swiss German background from North Dakota. So I, I grew up in this sort of mixed household and mixture of cultures and grew up feeling pretty weird and pretty strange. And I do think when I, you know, when I talk to people um, who write fantasy and science fiction, there is often, you know, people who do this kind of work often do have a sense of being weird somehow 
whether it's in terms of, you know, ethnicity or gender expression or, you know, something about their experience or they just are a really oddball person. <laughs> they just are strange. So, so, um, so the, the, the second answer I give is that, yeah, maybe there's something about this feeling that you, um, or that I was, um, born into a world that wasn't quite ready, that didn't know what to do with me. People are always asking me, like, well, people used to say, what are you? Uh, you don't get that so much anymore. Now it's like people are more subtle or like, you know, they say, where are you from? And I'm like, New Jersey. And they're like, no, no, but really, you know, what's your background? What's your ethnicity? Um, but it is something that I, I pretty much will get asked at some point every time I meet a new person. Like people have to know, what am I dealing with here? Um, and and that that uh, living like that repeatedly asks, you know, those kind of questions, hey, you know, you, you do feel like sort of an alien, like somebody that mm. <laughs> popped up from another planet or something. And everybody's like, what is this strange creature? So, um, so there may be some, you know, affinity with the fantastical um, that comes from that sort of experience. And the reason I, I call that answer also inadequate is that it still doesn't explain. I mean, there are plenty of people that have experiences and feelings of being, you know, oddballs or somehow not fitting in who don't write in these genres, uh, you know, and there are plenty of other people who are like, yeah, I, you know, I never felt like much of a weirdo and I just, you know, like this stuff. So that one's also inadequate. Um, and, and as I said, this is something that I used to find very, very irritating. And in fact, I did a whole, uh, doctorate. I did my PhD. I wrote my dissertation on fantasy in the works of the Sudanese writer Tayyib Saleh. Okay. And uh, I did that partly because I had this ulterior motive of like, if I really study the genre and its history, I'm going to know why I write fantasy. But I still yeah. don't know. Hmm. I still don't it, know. That's really interesting as well. It, it makes me think of, um, everyone always talks about, uh, I mean, I've, I've in my various different um, work lives, I've, I've run a lot of events and worked with a lot of uh, comedy writers and performers. And everyone always says that, that comedy uh, allows you to, to go to places that are perhaps too dark or too difficult to, to go to in, in any other mm. way. Because, because laughter it gives, you know, gives you a sort of, it gives you permission to, um, to, to, to raise sort of challenging issues. And it makes me wonder whether, you know, what you're saying about fantasy is a similar way of exploring belonging or having those difficult conversations about belonging and and journey and 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 otherness that that perhaps might be might be too sort of raw and stark if you drop them in a kind of realist um frame yeah i think um i think for for expressing those kind of issues and others as well i mean i actually think that that fantasy is there for us when our uh, when the language of everyday life is letting us down mm. when it is not adequate to expressing um an experience so i think that the the sense of not belonging could be one example of that kind of feeling but there are others as well i mean trauma is another one that i think is really i, I see a lot of writers who work on uh, expressing traumatic experience through 
um, speculative fiction through the idea of of the ghostly, right, and of haunting and these kind of returns. So there are there are experiences that we have that resist being told in an ordinary way, and I think that fantasy, whether it's you know through the fairy tale tradition or other forms of the fantastical and weird, they can really help. Um, to provide a means of expressing those things. Mm. So, so we've talked about otherness and, and belonging. So, so do you feel like you're, are you, are you on a journey somewhere with, with your writing? I think there are probably themes that crop up. Um, but I also think that in a way, you know, that's maybe a, uh, this is where critics are really helpful. Like literary critics will come in and look at somebody's work and go, oh, here are the, you know, the preoccupations and the themes. Um, um, as a writer, it's often difficult, you know, for me to see that because I, I don't, um, when I write, it's not theme that interests me. Mm. It's, it's experience and language. And then, of course, there are going to be themes in there that arise uh, and maybe there are repeated themes. I'm sure there are. Um, but I, it's not, if I think about, you know, my journey in terms of writing, I, I don't think of it as a pursuit of themes. I think of it as a, um, just a constant effort to be, um, to be open to what is arriving. And so it's almost like, I guess I could say, a journey um, in which I cannot see very far at all. I can really only see as far as sort of the next piece or the piece now, the thing I'm working on now. What is it demanding of me? What does it want? How can I work with it? How can I, what is it allowing me to explore that that interests me? Um, so I guess you could say I'm on a journey, but I'm like flat on my face, crawling along the ground, and I'm looking at each little minute detail that I'm crawling over. So I really cannot see where I'm going. Yeah, and actually, isn't that's one of the wonderful things about writing, isn't it? Is that those those moments of discovery when you know, you know, even if you've mapped out the the most intricate and detailed plot, um, I often find with with dialogue, sometimes my characters speak in a way that I was never expecting them to speak. Mm-hmm. And you only you only really know it until you until you write those words. You know, you, you like you said, you're kind of crawling on your face, and then you come across it, and it's like, oh wow, I never thought that's where we we're going to go. And, and oftentimes you have to go straight back to your plot and <laughs> change everything because your characters have, have gone off in a, in a different direction, which is which is great. Absolutely, which is why I don't outline because what okay. is the point? <laughs> what yeah. is the point of me making an outline? I'm definitely going to depart from that outline. Usually very quickly, like within two seconds of making the outline. So I ha- in, in my case, that is, that is wasted labor. And, and I guess, you know, I was actually just, just talking about this with a student who's working on um, a fantasy piece. Um, and I was saying, you know, the outline, sure, if, you, if it makes you feel good to make an outline and that's a good way of exploring this work for you, you know, go for it. But you're probably going to throw it out. And if you don't throw it out, then what have you done? You've made like an assignment for yourself. You know, if you make a detailed outline with all these chapters, then what is writing? Then writing is going and like filling in, kind of coloring inside the lines. Now you just made yourself a chore. 
and you've transformed your writing from something that is alive and that you feel like doing. Now you've just made yourself a task. You know, it might as well be just a job now. I mean, this is, this is what you do at your kind of daily grind. Don't do that to yourself mm. um, in your writing. Why? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm definitely the view, actually, it, it, across my, my whole life and, and to... to anyone who who ever ever seeks my advice you know i I definitely think that we you know we we all make way too many rules for ourselves um and and often you know they're self-imposed and then we waste years living by them until we finally go who the hell made this rule oh it was me i'll do that and i think similarly with with outlining i I tend to i tend to to and fro actually i've got one foot on either side so I, i i love to just write free and see where i go but then i'll jump to 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 the outline and to plot and and adjust it and tweak it and see what might happen. And then I kind of come back. And so I try not to be a slave to, to sort of either side. I'm, I'm kind of, yeah. I'm, yeah. I, I yeah. Float, I float in, in, in the middle. Absolutely. Kathy Acker said there are enough prisons outside language. Yeah. Right. There's plenty outside language. Why make them inside language? Very true. So what does your, what does a writing day look like? you if you're lucky enough to have a whole day what does a writing moment look like for you yeah moment is better never get a whole day um but uh i i write in the morning that's my that's the time when i'm fresh when my head is clearest um reading is an integral part of writing for me so um i read i have to read at least twice as much as I write. I mean, the amount of time that I spend reading is always at least twice as much as the time that I spend um, writing. So in the morning, I will get up, get my coffee and start reading. And I usually will read for about an hour, an hour and a half, um, and then maybe have an hour of writing. If I'm lucky and I still feel like I have energy and the thing is still alive after an hour, um, then I'll keep going, but usually not for very long. And then, you know, I'll do more more reading later in the day when I can, always read before bed. So my day is always, it, it's it's got these, you know, it's bookended yeah. by reading. And I wanted to talk about your teaching. And you mentioned your, your students earlier on. Is there a crossover between your writing practice and, and, and your teaching? Do they Do they inform each other? Yeah, they do. Absolutely. Um, I actually teach. So I, I teach literature. I teach Arabic literature, African literature and speculative fiction. Um, and I, I am not a, a writing teacher, actually, although this fall I will be teaching a speculative fiction workshop for the first time, which I'm very excited about. Yeah. Um, so I will get to explore that with students and I just think it'll be really fun. But what I'm usually doing in my classes is, is studying literature with students and studying um, literary theory and, and works of fiction and nonfiction and uh, and it's fantastic because, you know, I'm making the syllabus. So that means we're reading um, things that I want to read that I think are important. And I get to discuss them with other people. I always say that, you know, in becoming a professor, my goal was to turn my life into a giant book club. Mm-hmm. And I, <laughs> I feel like, you know, it, I'm not too far off. I wish we could get rid of grading because that's the part that it always is just a pain and I don't like it. Um, 
but but aside from that it's it's great people always you know things that i've taught i've been teaching the same books for years some of them and students are always um you know raising new points seeing things that i haven't seen before and i and i get to experience these works of literature in a really deep way um by by um studying them with students it's great yeah and and what differences do you do you find if, if any between well i guess what i'd call western literature and african arabic you know you, you mentioned speculative fiction i mean that's a really interesting um kaleidoscope really of tra- of tradition do you what differences do you come across i think you know when i when i think about um literatures of the african continent and my my area is um african literature in arabic so my, i i mainly concentrate on like you know egypt libya sudan um in the modern period but i read widely from places all over the continent and um i would say you know what really strikes me about this this um field and what struck me as soon as i began my phd in african languages and literature as soon as i entered that program it was like whoa the depth and the richness of the oral traditions in these spaces is just incredible and it's very humbling and kind of i think a healthful shock for um you know for graduate students on an american campus walking into class and you're like I'm going to study African literature and then it's like wait a second this is not it's not in books you yeah. know the really fundamental and and living stuff I mean it's not in books that's an exaggeration but there is an immense amount of of material that is that is in an oral form and one of the things that's very interesting to me about African novels and written African literature is this is this wrestling and playing and um getting really creative with those conditions of creating a written work of literature that is deeply interacting with the oral traditions of a place and there are all kinds of um of of techniques and of um just experiments and different ways of expressing that orality within writing which of course is impossible right you're never going to get it you can't you can't get the gesture you can't get the vibe you can't get the experience of being with an audience but the um the interaction of those things of the written and the oral i i find endlessly fascinating and it's had a, an immense effect on my own work i mean my first two novels um which are set in this made up world of Alondria so the first one is a stranger in Alondria the second one is the winged histories um those books are obsessed with this idea of the voice mm-hmm. and of poetry that is spoken of epic poetry of song um and and it's sort of the the tension between uh orality and writing mm it's a re- it is a wonderful thing and in the uk uh, i mean i mean probably for actually for the last 30 years but but for myself more you know probably in the last 10 years or so um 
you know the the, the oral story storytelling and and a sort of spoken word culture, particularly at, at sort of events and festivals, is really slowly starting to creep back again. And there's been some amazing archiving projects to capture the stories that you know would 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 die out otherwise as as generations move forward. And I think we're we're starting to realise now that maybe the internet has something to, a little part to play in that. Um, yeah. In, in its sort of more conversational and archiving abilities, but you know we seem to be remembering in the UK that there's this wonderful tradition and of course what's so great about you know the spoken word is that it's never fixed it's just permanently dynamic and it always changes yeah absolutely I I often feel like in my lifetime the things I'm interested in have sort of like come to me or become become more widely um interesting to the culture around me. And certainly oral storytelling is one of those things. People really listen. We listen, um, you know, so much more now than we did, say, when I was a kid. Um, And then the other one is science fiction, which is becoming like, you know, our lives are becoming so science fictional now or what, you know, when I was a kid would have been, you know, stuff that you you saw on the Jetsons now (laughs) in a cartoon somewhere now is um, is our life. And so it's sort of like, you know, people, writers who are who are interested in writing fiction, not specifically interested in writing science fiction, are writing. It's like everybody has a dystopian novel in them somewhere, (laughs) you know, because because people are trying to talk about what's going on. So which other writers do you admire or who should we be checking out right now? Ooh, this is, I love this question. Um, well, I must mention uh, again, Tayyib Saleh, um, especially his novel, Season of Migration to the North. When people ask me, you know, say, okay, I'm going to read a novel. I want to read an Arabic novel. Which one should I read? That's always the one that I say. It's my favorite. I've been, you know, reading it writing about it, talking about it, teaching it for 20 years. Um, and yeah, I'm obsessed with it. So, so definitely that one. And then in terms of, so in terms of fiction writers, I would say Kelly Link, Carmen Maria Machado, um, Amina Kane, Kate Zambrino. These are Writers, you know, some of them you'd put in a speculative fiction camp, some of them maybe not, some of them on the border, but those are all re- um, writers I love a lot. In nonfiction, um, I would say Christina Sharp, Teju Cole, I love what Teju Cole is doing right now, Moira Davey is another one. And then in poetry and sort of, um, I guess, you know, the more experimental side of prose, Banu Kapil. Renee Gladman and Dion Brand. Fantastic! So many for us to go looking for. And, I was going to say that's maybe enough to maybe that's enough to, to to go with for now. Yeah, well, and and for the, for those listening, I will put links into um, uh, our um, summary page for the um, for this episode for for people to go off and, and with one click discover all of that wonder. Um, I was also really interested to know a little bit more about. The collaboration with your brother, Del Sabatai. Do you want to tell us a bit about that and how it came about? 
Yeah. So this was, um, I love this project. This was, um, this is my most recent book, which is called Monster Portraits. Um, and it's a book that I did together with my brother, Del Samatar, who is a wonderful artist, um, a tattoo artist by I was going to say, profession. I read that he's, yeah. 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 So that's, um, that's his job. And, um, and he's always been great with ink. And in particular, he's always done fantastic ink drawings of monsters. So I always knew that I wanted to do a book with Dell. And in fact, it was right when my first novel was published that I thought, okay, great. I've got my foot in the door. That was 2013. I said, now I'm going to do a book with Dell. And we, we started working on the book then. And five years later, um, Monster Portraits was published. And what we did for this book was that he drew pictures of monsters and sent them to me. And then I wrote to them. So I would kind of look at the, the image, meditate on the image, think about it, dream about it, make up stuff about this, um, this imaginary creature. And they're, they're very short pieces. So, um, and they've been described as all kinds of different things. People have called them poetry. People have called them um, flash fiction. People have called them micro essays. Um, and that signals to me that something is right because, of course, you know, uh, a monster is, is a being without a clear category. So I think it's appropriate that these, whatever they are that I wrote, are kind of in that, in that monstrous, uh, in that monstrous realm. Um, but yeah, it was a great, it was, I love doing that project. It, it takes away the blank page, you know, there's no, you're sitting down to write, there's no blank page. Now there's a fantastic picture of a monster. It's a beautiful book. I mean, I, I've, I've read not all of them, but a, a good few of them. And they, like you said, it, it's terrific to get that visual stimulus and then, and then to be taken on this little journey into what might be going on behind these characters that are, you know, ink scratches on a page. It's terrific. Yeah. It's lovely. Um, so what are the main things you want people to take away from your writing or to find in it? Is, is there something or, or are you open on that? I think, um, well, as I began, you know, talking about um, this sense of atmosphere or um, of, of entering some kind of space, I think that that's what I, that's what I would hope people would take away. I mean, I would hope that some kind of quality of um, the space that that person has been in while reading my work would linger and that this would be something that was pleasurable and that they would want to come back to that space. And what's next? So next is a memoir, actually. And this is a wow. kind of a, yeah, it's kind of a departure for me. Um, it's coming out in next year in 2022 from Catapult Books. It's called The White Mosque. Um, and it is a memoir that it's, uh, it's, I need, I need to work on my elevator pitch. I need like to be able to describe this book in did two this, sentences. Did this come from, <laughs> did this come from one of your articles? I recognize the title. Yeah, there. I I have talked about it um, in interviews, and there was an excerpt of it has been published. So you may have seen. Yeah, the White Mosque. It's. I, I here's what I can say. It's set on a trip that I took to Uzbekistan in 2016, 
And um, I am thinking in this book about history, in particular, the history of a group of Mennonites who migrated from southern Russia into Central Asia in the 1880s, following a kind of um, apocalyptic sort of preacher. Um, so I'm thinking about that history, I'm tracing that history, and I'm also using that history as a kind of focal point to think about um, some of the issues that I have experienced my whole life, in particular about interactions between Mennonites and Muslims, as my family is Mennonite on one side and Muslim on the other. It sounds amazing. So that's next year that's coming out, 2022. That's 2022. That's what we're shooting for right now. Okay. Yeah. Um, and where can people go? I will, as always, put any links I can possibly come across uh, in the, uh, in the um, episode details. But where can people go to find out more about you and what's coming up? What's the best web addresses for them to or, or Instagrams or whatever you have? There is only one option. And wow. it is my website, and nice that is Sophia Sumatar. Yeah, that is Sophia dot com. Uh, I am I am somebody who uh, left, one could say, fled um, social media about five years ago, and I live under a rock, and I okay. like it there. So yeah, that's pretty much. It's just the website. Great. Yeah, I try to live under a rock, but I have to come out every now and again to. Um... Otherwise, I wouldn't meet. Otherwise, I wouldn't meet people like you. So, I, I yeah, I scurry back to my rock when I need to. Um, fantastic. Well, we've talked, we've talked and talked. Um, so we should probably wrap things up so our our listeners can go and make tea or or have supper or do whatever they're going to do. Go out for a walk in the sunshine, hopefully. Um, but before we do, we have to do our um, dreaded, feared, and ultimately amazing quickfire questions. That's so terrifying. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> so. Uh, as always, no right or wrong answers, short, long, whatever you feel like. Um, we will just rattle through them. So, favourite film or TV show? A Room with a View. How do you procrastinate? Assiduously. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right. Did you... Um, I'm not sure about this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Did you dream last night and what happened? <gasps> I did dream! I dreamt that I was on the phone with my um, kids' high school and I was having an argument with them and I argued so long that I missed my first um, COVID vaccination, which I am going to have right after I finish talking to you. So I dreamt that I missed it and wow. I do not want to miss it in real, real yeah, life. Yeah, and here we are talking for, <laughs> for way too long. <laughs> um, best dessert? Ooh... Black Forest Cake. Oh, yeah, me too. Uh, best advice you were ever given? If you are in a room with a problem, don't talk to it. Good advice. What's the number one thing you hope to pass on to your students? Ooh, that's a tough one. Number one thing I hope to pass on to my students, I hope to pass on a love of reading. Mm -hmm. uh, carnivore, vegetarian or vegan? carnivore what do you do to keep healthy um yoga and walking nice yeah i'm a yoga yoga doer too um what song defines you oh no <laughs> what song defines me 
This is a terrible question. <laughs> um, what song defines me? Uh, let's go with uh, Bob Marley and the Whalers. Wake up and live. Nice. Last question. Um, advice for other writers. Read. Read voraciously. Read omnivorously. Read things that are good, things that are bad, things that are strange, things that you think you're going to hate, uh, things outside of your favorite genre. Uh, read everything. Fantastic. There you go. See, they're not so bad. Are they? When, we, when, we, when we go through them, they're, um, they're good questions, the quick fires. Um, Sophia, thank you so much for your time today. It's been wonderful speaking to you. It's been wonderful listening to your story. Um, and good luck with everything in the future. Thank you so much. It's been great. 